0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to Enjoy the View. I'm Alex, and today on our panel, we have Tessa. Hi. Ari. Hello. And our special guest for this episode is Jessica Sachs. Hey, everybody. Would you
1: like to introduce
0: yourself? Give us some background.
1: Yeah. So my name is Jessica. I work at Cypress IO as a tech lead for the component testing team. I found my way there after working on Vue Test Utils for Vue, which, if you don't know, is the official Vue library for testing your components.
0: Cool. Well, since you're here and we have you and we should probably talk about this, I guess I'm going to just softball this to everybody. Does everybody here like writing tests? <laughs> Tessa? I wish you had given me some advance notice for this question. Oh, I'm sorry.
2: I like writing tests in theory when I have time to write them. My main struggle is that I always trip up on how to write the test. And then when I try to find the thing that I need in the docs, I can't find it.
0: Okay, cool. Hmm.
2: I like console logging very much, though. <laughs> how
0: about you, Ari? Do you like writing tests?
3: Not generally it honestly it depends somewhat on what I'm testing. Writing tests for just like straightforward like algorithmic functions, I actually do enjoy that because the test itself is super simple to write. You're just like I expect this output. Yay, but when it comes to like testing on the front end, writing unit tests for the front end I really don't like at all. However, I would say end to end end tests on the front end can have a pretty awesome satisfaction factor when you're watching the tests run in the browser. (laughs) It's really, I'm just in it for watching the tests, actually writing them. No, not as much.
1: (laughs) I feel you. That's, yeah. Yeah. That first moment, I remember I started as QA and the first code I ever wrote as a software person, right, was an end-to-end automation script. And it was Ruby or Python and watching, and it was for iOS. So I got to watch my app tap around. And it was just the most euphoric feeling I've had in my career. Just seeing the thing move without you touching it. It's just
3: what? And if you have an experience and you think we're crazy, just go try it yourself. I swear. It's a thing.
0: (laughs) Having come from doing unit tests and stuff in Python at previous jobs, yeah. That is the, I like to call it the most exciting, boringest thing you can do, because if everything works and you have everything done correctly, at the end of it, it just goes, okay. Like, that's it. That's all it does. Like, there's not any big, like, confetti or fireworks. I mean, you can set it up to, like, probably do that. But, like, it's just, it just, it does its thing. And if everything goes correctly, nothing happens. It's when something happens that it's, you're like, oh, ah. Oh. Error messages. (laughs) So I go back and forth on enjoying writing tests when I'm having to fight with my tools to write the tests. It is less enjoyable. But
2: I think also, like going back to what Ari said about the context or like the reason you're writing tests, when I've been in situations where I have to write tests because we need 100% test coverage. Yeah. Oh, that's the funnest, isn't it?
1: Yeah. <laughs> test coverage is an arbitrary stat. And I don't know, it's a construct that we don't actually need. So
2: how do you feel about writing tests? Are, are you allowed to answer that?
1: <laughs> oh, I, um, I am. And uh, I hate writing tests. I have it on good authority that so does my boss. And that's why he made Cypress, <laughs> which I, I found was very funny. I'd never asked him that until we were in a workshop together and he was like yeah i built cypress cuz i don't like testing i was like wow what a way to uh, to put yourself in your own little hell he's been doing it it's for it's annoyance
2: driven development for sure
1: yeah add but it's i don't know he's been doing it for 7 years and i was like you really set yourself up there for a fun career <laughs> but yeah i i don't like writing tests i like like many of you right i like unit tests they're very clear And like Tessa, I don't like setting up the test. Like that's the most annoying part is getting the component to mount is once it's mounted, once it's like in the document, you're like, oh, I know how to get things in the document and make sure they're there. And then everything's like normal. But getting the test, like getting the component first mounted is the biggest hurdle Yeah, I can't stress that enough. So I like to view component tests in four steps. The first is that you mount the component, and that's the hardest part. You know, you're doing things like mocking your entire app environment. So if a component depends on VueX, suddenly you have to learn how to mock VueX. And those kinds of challenges can lead people to rabbit hole and get frustrated with the process. And that's, I've been there. So you first overcome mounting the component. And once it's in the DOM, it's pretty easy to test. As JavaScript developers, we all know how to get elements from the DOM. So you have your component mounted, and you need to check whether it contains text. You know, Finding the text of a DOM element shouldn't be too scary for us. And then making sure the text contains what we think it should that's a pretty easy step too. So it's like you mount the component, you find the thing you're looking for, and you make sure it is what it is. Sometimes there's a middle step, right? Where you click on the component and then you make sure it is what it is. Those are the four steps I see in any component test. I echo basically all of your concerns with component testing, especially the one where you wanna see it run. That for me is super fun. Ari, you mentioned it's so satisfying.
2: Yeah, that's so reassuring to hear, especially that you also find mocking Vuex frustrating, because I think that's something I brought up in our previous episode as a particular part of testing Vue specifically that I always struggle with, especially if you have a lot of modules. Yeah, those steps really remind me of... uh, the steps that you need to take to solve all the mysteries and blues clues. And now I really want like a views cues or something like a testing song.
1: Oh my God. I'm not going to write that song. That's embarrassing. We just figured
0: out views cues. We just figured out views cues.
1: (laughs) We just figured out views cues. And what, what does he say last?
0: Because we're really... Because
1: start- it's really fun. Oh. Oh, boy. Am I too
2: old for this conversation? <laughs> yes. Uh,
0: maybe. I started I
2: watching Blue's Clues maybe as a teenager.
0: Same. I think Tessa oh, and I the
1: same great. age. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm glad that it's reassuring. It's just such a struggle for people. And like the part that gets weird is when suddenly you don't return anything. Like Mount doesn't really return an input output, right? It has a side effect of attaching to the DOM, and that's just kind of weird for people because they're like, "No, unit tests are inputs and outputs. What is this, you know, side effect thing?" And the way I like to explain it is, the contract of a component is to output onto the screen, and that's it. You know, you mount a thing, and it winds up on your web page. And then you make sure it's the right thing. So it's very similar to a unit test, except your output is something happening on the web page.
0: Yeah, I tend to, I know that for me, I tend to think of like when I'm writing tests, it's always what is the person who's going to use this? needing it to do right so it's always the you if you're doing end to end tests you're approaching it as a user as a user i should be able to interact with the page this way so with my unit test it's always like as a developer (laughs) if i use this component and i give it this prop it should spit this other stuff out right like and it happens to be mounted to the dom
1: Totally. Yeah, totally. And I'm actually in the middle of writing a course for View Mastery. And one of the things, mm-hmm. I know, it's very exciting. It's called Real World Testing. And it follows up from a intro to state management course that Adam Jarr is doing. And we did a course called Unit Testing for View Mastery that I consulted on. And it's about the basics. It goes over what the docs teach you you know, in a view mastery style way. So it has all the great animations and it's a very visual course. And it tells you like, how do you actually render your component on the screen? And how do you use the basic view test utils API? And that's a great intro point. But the thing that people really get stuck on is what should be in my tests? And how do I test a real world application with a router and store? You know, the basic stuff is usually pretty easy for folks. But where I get a lot of questions is when you hook it up into a real code base and trying to get people to think like a user. That's the tricky part.
0: Yeah, I would. Now I'm excited. I (laughs) will definitely be uh, looking forward to that course because I have those questions constantly.
2: All the time. Especially because a lot of, yeah, these example code bases are like, here is an app that is, designed perfectly to be tested and not like, you know, the way that real world apps are, which are even more better designed to be tested. Just kidding.
1: (laughs) It's really funny because since this, this course is structured such that you're not building the application as you're testing it. So it's kind of the scenario that many people find themselves in when you inherit a code base that has no tests and was not written with testing in mind. It was kind of funny that it happened like that. But so Adam, he wasn't writing his code with testing in mind. He was writing it to demonstrate state management and router in the simplest way possible. So the kind of app that we're testing is one that wasn't built for testing in mind. So because this course is the follow-on for intro to state management, Adam Jar wasn't building it for testing. He was building it to explain state management and routing as simply as possible, and so the situation you find yourself in is that of many developers where you inherit an application where the person wasn't thinking about testability, and that's not an uncommon scenario, that's that's pretty normal, or you procrastinated
3: on your own tests.
1: Oh, yeah,
0: <laughs> inheriting yeah. from we would past never. me,
1: God passed me, is the worst, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was, all the time, it's like, oh, I'm just going to get this out to beta test it or behind a feature flag, and then it's three months later, and you're like, hmm, this thing needs to grow up, and it has no tests. So that yep. happens all the time. <laughs> yeah, so that's something I'm really excited about. In the, in the like first lesson we go over, I have to teach users how to pull out a router link from a presentational component, so something that's simply supposed to render data onto the screen it's not even stateful there's no interaction it depends on router link you know just an a tag and that becomes very difficult to test you have to immediately learn how to mock router out in your simplest component
0: yeah i have definitely run into the like router testing issue we have that happen at work Quite a bit where we will be looking, even just like looking at route and like something somewhere is injecting router in and you're trying to mock it and it just gets angry and <laughs> like it doesn't want to be modified and you're like, but I need to because I'm trying to set up the current situation and uh, so. <laughs> I don't mock
1: the Vuex router and uh, the Vuex or router or any plugin. I just treat it like it's real. I find that mocking both removes you from like what will actually happen in production as well as makes your test really coupled to the source code. So if you change your source code, you have to go into your tests and that's really not ideal.
3: Every time, like I'll add some Vuex, like an action or something to a component, and then I'll run my test and it'll break. And I'm like, but I didn't even do anything. Oh yeah, no, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Let
1: me just mock that again. (laughs) I have cute little helpers for that. Like really early on, I was working with Vue I18n and I just wanted, in Vue I18n, there's this globally injected function that's like $T for like translate. And it lets you translate any string. And so instead of just writing English in your template, you'll reference some JSON file that was passed into your app. But all this is like set up at the root level. And so in your unit test, you're like, oh, how do I do this? Or your component test, you're like, oh, how do I do this? And so I have these little helper functions that set up any plugin. So they set up router or store or I-18N with all the defaults you have for production. So there's no mocking of every single method. So I don't know why this isn't done by default in the Vue CLI like starter code, but it's really simple. Again, in my lesson, like lesson three, I show how to do this. It's a lifesaver.
2: So what do you do I'm not sure if this is included in those use cases, but what would you do if like your store basically requires a lot of things from an external API and then those all trickle down through like multiple layers of sub stores that transform that data?
1: Yeah, the question for me when I look at any like advanced file is what happens when you import? Does anything run when you import the file? And that's the first thing with making things testable is anything that's a side effect that like executes immediately when you import it needs to be a function. And the first thing I do with the Vuex store, just starting from like that basic, you know, you've said view add Vuex from Vue CLI, you know, you're getting the basic scaffold. The first thing I do is instead of exporting the new store, I just make a function to create the store. And then the test I call create store. And you can kind of pass in your own fancy object that'll wind up on state. That's how I mock out the initial state for stores and merge it with the real stuff.
2: Sorry, maybe I misunderstood. I thought you were saying that you like to treat the store as real. So I took that to mean like you were using the actual store, but it sounds like that's not what you're saying.
1: No, it is. It is. I am using the actual store. I'm just wrapping the creation of it in a function. So you can do it over and over and over again in each one of your setups. So instead of like having the one store that you get by default, like in your store.js file, it's usually like export default new Vuex, and you pass in your config. In the test, you just wrap that in a function and then you call the function so you can keep setting it up.
2: So when you say using the actual store, does that mean like you're using the store as it was written, except for cases where let's say you're making an API call or something, so you need to stub that part out so you're kind of augmenting the original store code?
1: Yeah, so for stubbing, you can either, for API calls, you can either go the way of stubbing Axios, in which case you're using an actual library, or you can go the way of making your Vuex store a little more testable by injecting a wrapper, essentially. Like, you make a file that's the intermediate between fetch and the Vuex store, and you mock that file. So that's also why you'll see the services pattern. Sometimes inside of the root level, you'll see something like a services folder, and you'll have like one file per endpoint. That's a really good way to mock your Vuex stores network calls. So you don't have to go straight into fetch or straight into Axios, which are you know, implementation details, right? Your test doesn't care how the data gets there. They just want a promise to resolve with the JSON. API testing is very finicky. It's very difficult. So there's a few different ways to skin it. So it
2: sounds like for the most part, your main or sometimes only choice would be to restructure your store to make it more testable?
1: Always. Yeah. You always want to restructure your code to make it more testable. It would be nice if you didn't have to, but you know, the checklist of things I look for is what is executing immediately when I import the store? Is there a way I can get a pristine new store from a function call? Like how do I just have a really sandboxed setup for a store? And then how do I define these boundaries between my API calls and what the store uses? So how do I make a clean contract that my tests can stub out? There was a few other tricks that I do for stubbing data and API calls.
0: Yeah, we're having to do a lot of like mouth coding here where it's like, oh, yeah, you just, you, well, you have to like do like function open curly bracket. Yeah, we don't need it. I don't feel like that's probably uh, it's probably not something they we need, need to, to get. follow. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. I guess what I'm wondering is like if you're in the situation where you inherited a code base and it was not written with the intention of testing, and then like your first task is to add a new feature, and the team has let's say decided now that testing is required. How would you go about estimating the scope of that ticket?
1: maybe because I'm a little rude, I would say, how testable do you <laughs> think your source code is? And would you uh, like to pair with me? <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little rude about that though. It's, you know, they wrote it. You just showed up here. So they are the experts, um, and they can help you out. But functionally, if I didn't have somebody to pester, I would, uh, I would figure out what, the problems in the code base were, and I would just pick one section that was kind of plaguing it. Um, I would start with the simplest component that has no dependencies. I start with like something that's a props only display component, and then I kind of work my way up the component tree all the way up to a view or a page. So start with the smallest component that's maybe only styles, a template, and maybe data and you just keep working your way up the responsibility chain. So we could talk a little bit about, I think Ari said that E2E tests are satisfying to watch, but do you find them easier to write, Ari?
3: I do find them easier to write. I think my biggest struggle with E2E tests is that I maybe didn't always write my code in a way that had clear selectors. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which goes back to writing your code so it's testable. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, and like oftentimes, like, I don't always know what the best approach to selectors
1: is. Mm, yeah. That's a fun one. Oh, what do you think, Tessa?
2: The last time I wrote E2E tests, it was in Selenium Python. And we used, it was called X something. I don't remember the type of selector. XPath. You can get it when you right click. XPath. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And apparently there were there were some issues with it or like there weren't some niceties. So our like test integration engineer, test automation engineer wrote like a bunch of like helper functions and little libraries to smooth out some issues there. We also had like a big discussion about should we have IDs that are special to testing or classes that are special to testing? And I think at some point we talked about like the data hyphen properties. Yep. I don't know how I feel about properties that are specific to testing. Like, it feels like a good idea. And at the same time, it kind of feels a little bit to me like the thing with Gross. functional CSS where, <laughs> yeah, your template feels a bit cluttered. And so because of that, I was like, the data dash feels a little bit
1: less icky. Yeah. <laughs> I have a really good answer to this. Actually, my first mm. question is, when did you have to do the XPath selectors, Tessa? What time was that? year-wise?
2: Mm, maybe four, almost four years ago now. Yeah,
1: 2016. That's about right. 2017. It's 2021. Oh, Jesus. Is it, though? <laughs> is it really?
0: Yeah, it's, it's I like mean, March. It's, it's
2: the second year of 2022. Yeah, 2020, so, I mean. Oh, my yes. goodness.
0: March 2020, day 360-something. I hate it. I'm
1: so over it. So... <laughs> The fun answer to this, so back in the day, XPath was a great way for QA engineers who had no control of application to test it. Because oftentimes QA engineers didn't have commit access onto the repos. So sometimes when you were in a pinch, you couldn't modify the source code at all, and you had to use complex selectors to maybe get the nth item on a UL right? You're looking for some item that has the word dog in it, and you have no way to select which, you know, line item it is. And so you end up writing these crazy XPath selectors, which are, how do I describe it? It's kind of, it's like this weird hybrid query selector all that lets you do joined attributes. So you get like all the IDs, you also get like positionally how far down the DOM you're going. It's this overpowering selector.
2: It's a Rube Goldberg machine held together with toothpicks, basically.
0: Yeah, toothpicks and (laughs) query selectors. And more specifically with XPath too, to make it clear, it's not just HTML that you can query with XPath. It's really meant for XML documents where you don't have CSS selectors necessarily. So that's why it was invented.
1: Yes, totally. You know, HTML, XML type markup where you have these attributes you want to use to traverse Um, any tree, right? Any tree would do it. But we've kind of grown up out of XPath. You know, I don't think a lot of us have to write XML on a day-to-day basis. Thank God. (laughs) And so the, the fashionable thing, I think, now is to use... YAML. (laughs) <laughs> all right, was that not it? I thought that's where we <were> going. <laughs> exactly. Oh my God, Tessa! I like to write my spec files in YAML. So <laughs> um,
0: I thought we were all using Toml. When did we change to YAML? I don't.
1: Well, Netlify made Toml cool again. So I, Python, I don't care Python
0: made Toml cool again.
1: Thank you. Did it really? Oh. I don't know.
0: <laughs> Pyproject.toml was is a uh, pep. Thing, Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Completely Uh, off topic. Anyway. I
1: mean, mean, Python was my first language. Well, okay. Technically it was like the first language I got good at. My first first language was Objective-C, which is, I kind of pride myself on having an obscure first language. Um,
2: Nice. So your first first language was Objective-C and your first language language was Python.
1: Yes. Yeah. That was the first time I like wrote code that worked well by myself. Yeah. So back to XPath, though, it's yeah, it's such a mess. And we've now that QA engineers generally have more commit access, people are able to adjust the selectors so that they're more semantic. And there's a great web page in the testing library documentation. So it's called what query selector should I use? And users don't look at the ID or the XPath, they are closest to accessibility. And so the number one and two selectors that Kent C. Dodds, the author of Testing Library, the number one and number two selectors he advises people use are accessibility-based, you know, the ARIA label and the ARIA text. I think that's a really cool modern shift from XPath.
3: I also feel like you can corner yourself into extremely brittle tests with the selector you choose.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: It reminds me of a, yeah, a discussion that I had once with one of my early teams about like the value of BEM and like what it brings to the table and how like whenever you restructure your elements, then you have to like restructure all your BEM.
0: (laughs) Do you prefer utility classes?
2: I do not, but I also don't use them.
0: Yeah, I kind of hurl a bunch of CSS at the page and then terrible things come out. So it's not, I'm not, (laughs) I'm not allowed to do design.
3: I just go with what feels right to me. (laughs) Always a good strategy.
1: (laughs) I mean, I say it like I'm doing it sarcastically, but not far from the truth. (laughs) I feel like I feel like yeah. people have two answers to a lot of questions. This is super true for testing too. There's the interview answer that you give when somebody asks you, like before you have the job. And then there's like what you actually do. What's your interview answer, Ari? If you had to I just
3: pray they never ask about CSS and so far yeah. they have it.
1: <laughs> good, good. Yeah. My test trick was- is to
3: interview at places that don't have a full-time front end engineer already. Because then no one asks.
1: <laughs> right. They don't know what to ask. I, I got asked a very hard question. I interviewed at one place before I interviewed at Cypress last February. And they their UX developer asked me a very specific question on how to access. Like, it was it was nuts. He was like, how do you access, how do you change the color of an element that's like way sibling and out of the way of some button using no JavaScript and only CSS I was like what I was like how do you I have no idea and the yeah. there was like it was a trick answer and I kind of hate these questions yeah it's like it you gotta jam- use like
0: a plus selector and then nth child or something right.
1: really the answer isn't like why would you, know. you do that Exactly. You're right. I should have asked (laughs) I was was so into it. I was like, how do you do it? It was a really fun question, but the, the answer ended up being like you separate the input from the label and then you can tag it like wherever you want. And that would update some pseudo selector that you can get access to. I was like, that's really messed up.
2: Oh, see, given your earlier comment, I thought maybe your answer would be, "I don't know." You wrote this markup. You tell me why you came up with this situation and how we're going to get out of it.
1: That's a
0: good one. Yeah, that is definitely the one where if if somebody comes to you during an interview and they say, "Hey, like, how do you do this weird archaic thing in a language that nobody does?" You go, "I wouldn't," and if I saw that in a pull request, I'd say, "You need to change this."
2: It's like putting important on your interview response. Yes.
0: Yeah.
3: I just like doing like five pseudo selectors chained together just for funsies. Again, and- I say that like I'm sarcastic, but I definitely did write a selector recently that I think was at least four pseudo
1: selectors. That's the beauty <laughs> of SAS, right? It's so tiny to just write five pseudo selectors, right? You can do it in one line. And, uh, Generate some beautiful yeah. markup.
2: That's what I really like about SAS because my approach is generally like treating it like nesting boxes. So each class yeah. is like a box. And I guess it's similar to BEM in functionality. But then when I move stuff around, I don't have to change the class name. That's interesting.
1: Okay, so my interview answer for... Back to testing. My interview answer for "do you unit test" is or "do you do TDD"? It's always yes, and you can't answer with anything but yes. And the reality is like only a handful of people do TDD religiously, and like we know this, right? I don't know. Do you guys do TDD frequently with everything? Yeah, everybody's shaking their heads.
2: <laughs> what I want to know is the Venn diagram overlap between people who are sort of looking for Like they do adhere to TDD like 100% of the time and the people who tweet about doing TDD 100% of the time.
1: Oh, yeah. I'll so take. people who are posing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. The people who tweet about TDD clearly don't because they have not written tests. To test and the their people tweet. who and... do don't
3: have time to tweet.
2: Oh! <laughs> Maybe the T stands for tweet. You don't know.
1: I do a lot of <laughs> oh feature and development. TV. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Twitter, Twitter. driven development. That's good. Yes, if
0: anybody has any comments about that, at gloomy loomy. <laughs> so we're talking about CSS. We're talking about SAS and like scoping and stuff like that, but like Does anybody have a good way to, like, test components in a browser by themselves without making some weird, like, amalgamation of, like, multiple tools together?
2: Are you talking about, like, clicking through the app and seeing if it works? Well, there's that. No, that was a segue to Cypress. I'm sorry, I ruined it.
0: There's, like, Storybook, right? And so you can, like, make, like, components in that. But then, like, trying to get that hook, you have to, like, run a Storybook server and then, like, start in e do e thing to like click through that automatically and like it'd be i don't know it'd be cool if there was like a way that we could like put those two together
1: yeah that's what people do right now they launch storybook and then they hook cypress end to end up and it's it's kind of bizarre right it's like you have two tools and you're not even testing production you're testing like the storybook Webpack render so i've You know, just the other day, I saw a component library, like Boilerplate, on GitHub. And it was like, here's how you use Rollup to build your TypeScript component library, and then use Webpack plus Storybook to, you know, mount it into a development environment, and then use Cypress E2E to test it. I was like, what a terrible mishmash of tools. About a year ago, when I joined Cypress... I was hired to lead the component testing effort, and it had been going on for quite a long time, but it was only Webpack-based, and it was pretty slow because it was baked into the end-to-end test runner, and you know, end-to-end tests have always been slow. Cypress is a fast end-to-end runner, but that means nothing to component tests and Jest. Like people would not trade their component testing framework for Cypress when I joined. But very soon after we gutted the existing solution and we made component testing a first class citizen at Cypress. So we integrated it very tightly and we got rid of all of the slowness. So all of the like If you've used Cypress before, there's this extra app that launches to let you launch your various browsers. In end-to-end, people care about Firefox, people care about Edge and Chrome as their browsers. And in component testing, we're just happy to use a real DOM instead of JS DOM, which is what ships with Jest, So if you've ever had to polyfill fetch or request animation frame in your tests, we don't want to do that. You know, that's not what a real browser does for your components. And that's the strength of Cypress component testing is we can do everything from capture file downloads to alerts. So there's really no need to polyfill anything in the browser. And that's super cool. I think going back to the mishmash and your question earlier, Alex, was is there a tool that lets you test your components in the browser? And that's what we've been building. We re-architected the old solution that had been around for about two years at Mm Cypress and uh, had never really taken off. We re-architected it and rebuilt it to be dev server-based. So the thing I'm most proud about is We launched a new beta about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, and we haven't really publicized it. So it's about the beginning of February is when we launched, and we haven't publicized it. We're doing a very slow rollout, but it has support for Rollup. It has support for Webpack. It has support for Vite, and that makes it lightning fast. You know, we went from 45 second startup times, which is what you get with Storybook, right? They're webpack based. You get a 45 second startup until you can do your component development. So currently working with Storybook, because it's webpack based, it takes about 45 seconds to launch. And we were the same at Cypress in the original version of component testing. It took about 45 seconds to launch your Webpack dev server. And that's a pain you already feel, right? When you're doing app development, it takes however long it takes to bundle your application. And that's the real cool thing about Cypress's component testing is that we're as fast as your dev server. So any optimizations or dev servers you may choose we're gonna be as fast as that. So in our original example where people were using, you know, Rollup to develop their component libraries and Webpack to run their storybook, we would just use their Rollup dev server or, you know, the the new hotness, we would use Veet. And that gives you sub one second startup in Cypress component testing. And we actually rival Jest for testing. When you're doing TDD, When you're rerunning and changing your components, if you're doing style updates or template updates, we I think we retest like a medium-sized test, we would rerun in 650 milliseconds. And yeah, just takes about one to two seconds, depending on how cached it is and how many modules you're loading. But Cypress. Because of our dev server architecture, we're not rebundling like Jess does. We are just using a combination of hot module reload and any dev server optimizations that Dev Server does. For the basic small component, we're talking 130 milliseconds, but I've seen it lower. It's super cool. And usually you're just running one component test at a time anyway. So it's that's really cool. And then like the power that comes with testing in a real browser. I'm so excited.
0: That sounds real neat because I definitely have, I've started playing with some Vite stuff and it's really like, it was uncomfortably fast. And yeah, I would be really, it would be really cool to go ahead and start integrating like that sort of thing where I can just go, okay, cool, let me test this component and like do that testing in the browser with Cypress. And that would be amazing. So I'm going to have to...
1: I will give you early access and we can pair and we can hang out and we can, I'd love to user test with you, honestly. We're just getting the UI a little cleaner and we're working on inlining the dev tools into the browser. So you don't even have to have like the de, like Google Chrome dev tools open. It's just right next to your component.
2: Oh, that's going to be great. It's really cool. I want to watch
0: <laughs> We're just going to have a special episode with me and Jessica going through a code base. And I'll be like, how do I? Oh, OK, this is really cool. <laughs> it's so much fun.
1: I try not to have a culture on my team. Like, I haven't talked about this yet, but I got the really amazing privilege of hiring most of my open source heroes onto my team. So, Aww. yeah, it's in in November and December, I got to hire Bart Ladeau, who wrote Vue Style Guidist and maintains, uh, helps maintain Vue Storybook. I got to hire him for component testing, which is all about, you know, being a development environment in your browser, honestly. And then I also got to hire my co-maintainer of Vue Test Utils, Lachlan. And that's just been such a dream. We have such a great team. And, uh, yeah, I think in total we span, I think, four time zones and speak eight languages between all of us. Yeah, Lachlan speaks Japanese, which is pretty cool. So
0: that's really interesting.
1: Yeah. He used to work in Japan and yeah. I've started learning Japanese just so I can, like, maybe pair program with him in Japanese. But <laughs> I'm still bad at listening, Tessa. <laughs> oh, I said, uh, <laughs> do your best. Oh, which uh, I feel like oh. in English
2: sounds like a lot of pressure to me. But <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I'm going to butcher the pronunci- pronunciation, but it's like gambate. Oh boy, that's how you say it is g a m b a t e. But I can't pronounce it.
2: Yeah, gambate. Yeah. So one last thing I was wondering about with regards to Cyprus was I remember when my team was looking at it uh, the first place in in 2017. One of the concerns that the test automation team had was that it seemed like it really only supported like Chromium style browsers and we had to support Internet Explorer. So I'm wondering if anything has changed on that. front.
1: No, and I don't think we're going to support Internet Explorer. And my suggestion for people in any testing strategy, and I did this at my last job where we had to support IE8 until 2018, I would show up to like CSS workshops and people would be like, why can't you use Flexbox? So it's, it was a mess. But the way we got around code coverage for IE and IE 11 was real-time monitoring. So if we threw errors, we would hit an API endpoint. And most of the time, what you need to test in your application is the functionality and if it works, like if the components are actually doing the right things. And that's 99% you'll catch in Chrome. And the only IE failures I've had are the bundle doesn't compile because you didn't polyfill this thing. Um, Those are the only IE failures I've ever experienced while supporting IE 8 through 11.
2: I think Internet Explorer was still supported in 2017, but
0: not now. Yeah, Yeah, I think that Internet Explorer 11 still has support for Enterprise through yep. 2025. Yep. So it's still got a few more years for us Enterprise people. But I know that our company, we have officially dropped support for it. Uh, my current company, we have officially dropped support for it. So
3: The other argument you can use is a security argument. Just be like, hey, if you guys care about the security of our app, you'll tell people that they can't use Internet Explorer.
1: I think there's also a like, now there's like a same site cookie angle you can use with GDPR. So there's, there's quite a lot of ways to convince your manager. But all in all, even if you have to do it, you can still get coverage from Chromium browsers for almost all of your users. And I would suggest for many, many reasons to invest in real-time production error catching because the things that slip through are always the things you didn't write tests for and that some end user was able to get into a state
0: with. Yeah. We have real time error reporting and it is perfect. We I picked up one just the other week. It was great. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, I think in terms of like the place I was at, it wasn't so much that we wanted to support IE, so much as like our customers couldn't switch off of IE. So it's great to have like an alternative support angle for people to take a look at if they're in that situation.
1: If you ever want to interview somebody with a similar situation, Lachlan came from that background. He had to write medical software that would calculate dosages. And it's one of those pieces of software that you're like, I cannot ship bugs. And they used Cypress for all of their testing. So if you ever want to talk to him about the challenges of convincing your boss to let you ignore IE 11 end to end coverage and pick Cypress, you can talk to him. See, that's fascinating to me because I also currently work on healthcare
3: software. And because of HIPAA, that's why we don't
1: support IE. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think I know. We, yeah. Companies have like quirks, they all have these like strongly held beliefs that. I don't know, when you go back in time, it just all happened in a Google Doc in some meeting where they decided they needed to do it.
2: <laughs> Most times there isn't even a Google Doc.
1: Yeah. we Truth. <laughs> yeah, we have the problem of Zoom recordings being our source of truth. Our founder, Brian.
3: Yeah. Our oh, no.
1: It's rough. We really skew towards long meetings and we use like a transcribing service. I was about to
2: ask, do you guys at Did, least get transcription? Yeah. Can you bring him on the show? I just want to talk.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what you're asking for. There's so much talking. <laughs> he, oh my God. Yeah. Like all founders, he's very brilliant and I love him dearly, but it is an exercise to get decisions made concisely. It is. I don't know. It's a bunch of fun though. Anyway.
0: Cool. Well, I think that's good for this week. Jess, where can people find you on the internet?
1: So I tweet a lot. uh, So you can find me on my Twitter handle at underscore Jessica Sachs. And you can also find me at my talk in ViewConf US on Vite and Cypress component testing. Veet actually doesn't really have a good component testing answer right now, and we're hoping to solve that problem.
0: Awesome. All right. And with that, it's time for us to move on to this week's picks. Uh... Ari, Ari, would you like okay. to go first? Sure.
3: My pick is Clubhouse Games on Switch. It is super fun to play with friends, especially trying to play drunk darts. <laughs> just saying, not that I've ever done that. I just theoretically I assume it would be super fun. And you can play by yourself or with friends, so it is a pandemic, so if you are being responsible and you're by yourself,
2: then you can still play.
0: Awesome, Tessa. Do you have any picks?
2: Yes, I have two. So, the first pick we've talked on the show in previous pick sections about how I have hair. And one thing that's really tough about having hair in the winter is static electricity. And I have a bunch of different kinds of brushes, including like anti static brushes that like work for a week and then stop working. And so, I recently read that if you brush with a wooden brush, That would not add static. And I was very skeptical, but I just got my brush with bamboo from the Zero Waste store and it seems to be working very well. Actually, like I feel like my hair is less staticky after I use it. Now, if that could be combined with a detangling brush, that would be perfect. But so far, I'm really liking that.
3: Okay, wait. So when you say... Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because I also have hair. It's very long now because... Actually, no, I was growing it up before the pandemic, but we can pretend that that's the only reason why. So is it
2: like the bristles are wooden, too? The or whole it... thing is wooden. Oh, OK. There's I some, am like, in the market Tessa, for a new hairbrush. Bristle so... brush ASMR.
0: Yeah, Tessa yeah. is showing us her wooden brush. Oh, and...
2: my gosh. It, I'm going to have to try it's that. It's all bamboo and rubber. Yeah. yeah.
1: Zero waste uh, so is that's... amazing. I just ordered mm-hmm. from there. I ordered a ton of stuff from there. <laughs>
2: Nice. Yeah, I like how you can offset your carbon emissions for the shipping, too. That's pretty neat.
0: Nice. Jessica, do you... Oh, no, wait.
2: No, we still have a pick.
0: Sorry, I'm sorry.
2: Yeah, I guess guess Zero Waste Store kind of snuck in there as a half pick. (laughs) So my second pick, I haven't actually tried it yet, but I just got today this three-dimensional game called the Think Fun Gravity Maze Marble Run. And it's basically like if you've played that game Rush Hour, it seems like it's very similar, but it's three dimensional. And given our expath conversation earlier, it seemed like an apropos pick, despite my not being able to endorse it personally yet.
0: I might have to look into this thing because that sounds really cool.
2: Yeah, it's also clear and colorful plastic, which I always love. So,
0: yeah, Jessica, do you have any picks for us this week?
1: I do. So my quarantine hobbies are gardening and anime. And so I have two picks. I um, It's winter in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So everything we grow dies, except for our arrow garden. And I have, this is a podcast, but I have two giant bushels of greens. We're growing like bok choy and two types of kale and some greens I've never even heard of. And they're like producing enough delicious salad. And my family hates salad. So this is like, it's super cool. So that's the Arrow Garden. Wait,
0: and, what? It sounds what? like a win-win to me. You get to eat salad <laughs> and your family hates it. It's wonderful. Yeah, like, no. Yeah, right? <laughs> no, no, no. They
1: hate most salad, but this salad is delicious.
0: Got it. Okay.
1: Yeah. And it's satisfying. We also have a little herb garden with them and we use all the herbs and drinks and stuff. Oh, neat. It's really good. My second pick is, is my anime hobby. And I think it's either Crunchyroll or Hulu, but there's an anime called Heaven's Design Team. And it's brand new in 2021. And the premise is that God was supposed to make all of the animals and plants. And that was supposed to be the plan, but it was too much work. So he outsourced it and it follows this design team that is supposed to create different animals. And it's totally like if tech workspace was about creating like the giraffe and all of the technical decisions they have to make about, you know, maybe- disrupts neck proportions. What? Yeah. I mean, like, so then they talk about like why the giraffe's neck is so long. And I think it's like, and why it has, I'm going to mess this up. Why it has like two stomachs because of the blood flow to its brain. And they like debug why the giraffe dies with different proportions. It's not actually like gory. It's very cute. It's very, very cute. Yeah.
0: That sounds really interesting.
1: No, I I promise it's cute. They like figure out how to make narwhals and like why the unicorn won't work functionally. (laughs) It's super great. And the unicorn is developed by the guy that made the horse who just cannot get over his original idea for the horse. And he keeps trying to make variations
0: of it. So he also came up with the zebra and and the mule we, did the zebra. we the... just
1: did the zebra the zebra was an accident while somebody else was trying to get their design through it's super good i promise right. thank you horses but tigers i can go on but just watch the show it's great
0: that sounds fantastic i'm gonna have to check that one out now
1: Okay, one more thing. The Galapagos Islands are their test grounds. And so they, <laughs> when they're trying to test if the animal will work, they go and they like rearrange the Galapagos Islands into the proper environment and drop the animal there to see if it will live. It's very cute. Anyway.
0: Okay. Well, yeah, that sounds fantastic. So my picks this week are, I have one pick, I have one pick, and my wife may or may not have told me to say this one. So there is a soda company here in Georgia that we have recently started getting craft sodas from. Um, They're based in Athens, Georgia, and they have a, a couple of really fantastic flavors. I really love their, what is it, jalapeno, no, habanero strawberry and the butter pecan cream soda. It's like drinking a carbonated pancake. It's really fantastic. And for those of you who don't know, I don't drink. And so sodas are like my thing. So this company is based in Georgia. They have really good flavors. They also have a, a limited time flavor of their split banana cream soda that is for the uh, Savannah Bananas baseball team down in Savannah. Ooh. Yeah. So the company is called New Creation Soda Works, and they are delicious and wonderful, and I highly, highly recommend them. And that's all for this week's episode. If you aren't following us on Twitter, head on over and find us at Enjoy the EnjoyTheViewCast. Be sure to subscribe to us in your podcatcher of choice. And if you have some time, leave a review. Finally, remember, the first rule of View Club is... Tell at least five or six colleagues about View Club. Thanks for listening, and until next time, enjoy the view.